Well, hi there, and welcome to the LifePoint Leadership Podcast, where the vision of our church is to grow a church where people love to experience God's presence, learn God's teaching, share in God's family, and the most important part for our purposes tonight, serve God's mission. This podcast is for everyone that requires a criminal background check to serve in a ministry. This means children's ministry, youth ministry, department leaders that work with minors. So all of our community facilitators, pretty much every department head and our church board members, as well as our entire pastoral team. And this podcast is about a very important subject. It's to show you our plan to protect. And I'm super excited to have as my podcast sidekick here today, our serve coordinator and my amazing wife, Stephanie, to help walk us through this training. Tonight is all about our plan and procedure for keeping our kids safer, protecting our young people, protecting you as a volunteer, as well as the name and reputation of our church. Let's jump right into it. All right, so I'm going to say the heavy stuff right at the beginning and because we've got a really important thing to talk about here today, and that is there is nothing that can more negatively impact a human being as well as impact an organization like a church than the allegation of sexual abuse. So our goal for this podcast today is to highlight how we are going to protect our kids, our children, and our youth, how we're going to make our church a safe and professional environment for families to experience ministry in, to make LifePoint a safe place to serve for staff and dedicated volunteers that protects them from false allegations, as well as meet the requirements of our insurance provider. Stephanie? Hey everyone, every year in September, you'll receive and sign off on this annual training. This is so that you can know your responsibilities as a staff member and as a volunteer. And you'll also know your responsibilities as a member. And you can also feel confident in the safety of your children when you place them in our care. The reason why we wanna talk about this uh, today is we all know, we've all seen the ugly and horrible headlines of the things that have happened in churches in recent past as well as in decades past where things happened. There was abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse took place in ministries and in churches, and when it was exposed and brought into the light, people swept the allegations and uh, and and these evil acts completely under the rug and wanted to pretend like they never happened. I, I want you to hear right now from this leadership and this ministry team that that's wrong. Whenever abuse gets sweeped under the rug, it hurts people, it damages them, and it has the ability to completely wreck their faith in God. And this is not going to be us. This is not going to be the culture of LifePoint Church. We are going to put policies in place that protect children and youth 
and other vulnerable individuals like elders, as well as put policies and procedures in place that will protect our staff. See, here's why we are responsible as a church to protect children under our care. Justice Francis T. Murphy of the Supreme Court of Canada said, children have neither the power nor property. Voices other than their own must speak for them. If those voices are silent, then children who are victims of abuse may lean their heads against the window panes and taste the bitter emptiness of violated childhoods. Another quote is this, we believe that childhood innocence is a gift given by God. Children are naturally trusting. Children readily put their faith in adults who care for them. Thus, it is our responsibility as a church to safeguard that trust. Childhood innocence is a gift that we as a community of faith, as a ministry and leadership team, must plan to protect. And our ability to reach people is directly related to how well we care for their children, their young people, and other vulnerable individuals. So not only do we have a plan to protect so that we can protect harm from coming to the vulnerable individuals that God has placed in our care, not only to protect our church and our staff, but also our ability to conduct ourselves professionally and ethically brings glory to the name of Jesus. And it shows the world that our church truly cares about people. So let's jump right into the the training today. So we're going to talk about what abuse is. We're going to talk about our policy on dealing with abuse. We're going to talk about reporting procedures um, concerning abuse. And at the end of this, uh, you're going to be asked to fill out a Google form where you will sign your name and and date and acknowledge that you have received this training. And this this will be mandatory for uh, our volunteers for whom this training is relevant. So community facilitators, church board members, pastoral ministry staff, those that work in kids and Sunday school, department leaders that work with vulnerable individuals, etc. It's going to be a mandatory thing we go through every year. So, Stephanie, let's go ahead and jump right into... Um, into the meat of the training. So first we want to define what is abuse. So child sexual abuse involves behavior that involves touching and non-touching aspects. So the types of abuse that involve touching include fondling, oral, genital, or anal penetration, intercourse, or forcible rape. And the types of sexual abuse that do not involve touching include verbal comments, pornographic videos, obscene phone calls, exhibitionism, and allowing children to witness sexual activity. The impact to a child, as I mentioned already at the beginning, if abuse occurs on our watch, can be profound. And this is not an exhaustive list, but this this goes to show you the, the gravity of the subject at hand today. And that is, when a child is abused, there is damage to self-esteem, They can feel like they're dirty or damaged, feelings of guilt, shame, despair, and anger. Um, There are high-risk behaviors that that sexual abuse victims will often engage in as a result of the trauma they have experienced. Post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, often a, a, 
a diagnosis given to uh, abuse survivors, disrupted patterns, sleep patterns, uh, nightmares, regression, uh, problems with memory, cognition, attentiveness, inability to trust others. They withdraw from relationships, fear of intimacy or commitment. So not only do they suffer the trauma of the abuse, but, but often when it happens and they're quite young, they project that trauma onto all other rela- uh, relationships. There's re-victimization through exposure to, to triggers, higher incidence of mental and emotional disorders and trauma like anxiety, depression, or eating disorders. But most importantly, most of all, beyond the trauma that can be experienced in this life, if we are negligent in preventing sexual abuse from happening on our campus and in our ministries, there is a great chance that those who are the most hurting will lose their faith in Jesus Christ. But not only is the impact of abuse felt by the victim, but there is negative impacts on the church at large. And Stephanie, why don't you talk about the impact um, on on the church? A single incident of child molestation can devastate a church and divide the congregation. Members can become outraged and bewildered. Parents can question whether or not their own children have been victimized. And the viability of the church's youth and children's programs can be jeopardized. And church leaders can face blame and guilt for allowing the incident to happen. So such incidences often receive you know, massive media attention and sometimes even on a national scale. We've all seen those, right? We've seen the headlines and we've shaken our heads at how anyone could, could let this happen. Well, that could happen to us if, if, if we are, if we're negligent. And so often people that are in your community begin to associate the church with the incident of the, you know, the, the abuse. And by far the more tragic is the emotional trauma to the victim and to the victim's family and the potential, um, you know, a, enormous potential for the legal liability that the church faces. And if a trial ensues, the issue often stays alive in the media for months and sometimes even years. So this all, you know, results in a loss of credibility to community, a loss of liability shield over the directors. In addition, ministerial staff, um, their ministry could be over. And so in these situations, we must practice due diligence and people are often considered guilty before being proven innocent in this situation. So this means that we've got to be prepared. We've got to be organized. We've got to be professional in our ministry to children, youth, and, and elders, other, other vulnerable individuals. So we're going to now walk through what our plan to protect policy is. Now, this just for sake of full disclosure, this is not a policy that Stephanie and I or pastor have uh, have dreamt up or written up. Um, this is authored by Plan to Protect, which is a nonprofit organization that works very closely with Robertson Hall, our insurance company, and their policies have been developed by, uh, by Christians for churches and uh, vetted, uh, at least in the policies that we have, for the Canadian legal context. And so um, these are requirements from our insurance company because they're best practices to protect our kids, our young people, and you as a volunteer. So pastors and staff, and we'll talk about this more when we discuss reporting, pastors and staff are morally and legally responsible to 
report abuse. So when abuse comes, an allegation comes, or discovery or suspicion of abuse comes to your attention, you are morally responsible and legally responsible to report it. This means we're not the judge, we're not the jury, we're not investigators. We are we are to report. So here is what we are required to do from the outset. And we'll walk through, like I said 30 seconds ago, how this happens in a few minutes. All staff, volunteer or paid, must report all abuse regarding children or youth or minors that is shared with them. You need to report what happened. You need to report the location. Was it in the church or out of the church? You need to report the allegation of who the perpetrator is, whether it is a member or non-member. And if we see suspicious activity, not necessarily um, abuse, but we suspect something uh, nefarious or untoward is going on with a child or with an elder, you need to report that suspicious activity to the pastor. But an allegation of sexual abuse must be reported to the police. So I, I felt, again, we're going to deal with this in a moment, but I felt it was really important that that at the beginning outset of a sexual abuse and abuse prevention policy that all of our staff and all of our ministry team understand that we are legally and morally obligated to be reporters. We are mandatory reporters of abuse under law. Now let's move to our policy as to how we're going to uh, prevent abuse or allegations of abuse from happening in in our church and in our ministries. And, and Stephanie, so why don't you walk, uh, walk through that with us? So here's some of the things that we are doing at LifePoint. Um, the Sunday school is going to be locked down starting at 1020 every Sunday morning. And um, parents and uh, guardians are still able to drop off their children anytime after 1020 a.m., um, but they must drop off and pick up their children. No one else can um, do that for them, and the children are not allowed to just leave. Um, other members who are, you know, just coming into the area, they want to grab something, maybe they need to go to the social committee, they're not to do that at that time. So that needs to happen, you know, prior to 1020 if you need to get in some of those other rooms because only staff are supposed to be in that area, staff with police checks, are to be in that area during that time. There's also um, no basement access for unscreened individuals without children in the ministry beginning at 10:20 a.m. So back to what I said about the people. If you need to get something in the kitchen, so like Community Sunday, yes. you know, people got to set stuff up in the kitchen, things like that. That all has to happen before 10:20. Before 10:20, and we do want to be strict with enforcing that, um, that unless, unless you have a criminal background check, um, and really are supposed to be down there for that particular ministry time, you need whatever you need in those rooms, whatever you need in the basement, get it, get it before 1020. And also it's not the place to hang out. It's just chatting with other parents, that sort of stuff. We would just encourage people to go up to the more common spaces and stay out of the, the ministry area during that time. So the next part of our policy beyond lockdown procedures is we screen all volunteers who work in a place of influence with vulnerable individuals. So we screen all paid employees, including ministerial staff and volunteers that work with preschoolers, 
uh, children or youth, community facilitators, department leaders who work around minors, pastoral staff, board members, and anyone with criminal abuse violations will not be allowed to work with children or youth. And and our screening goes beyond this criminal background check that we've referred to several times. It also uh, involves other things, and I'll highlight those for you now. For example, in Kids Point, one of our recent changes is we now require all volunteers to complete a volunteer application with reference checks that is specific to the Kids Point ministry. So Kids Point now has an online form that's tied into our Avanto Church database where before you serve and even after you have submitted your criminal background check, you need to submit a volunteer application that asks some different questions for us to get a chance to know you a little bit better. And this is something that comes from Plan to Protect in our insurance company. Another recent change that involves some extra screening is when the young people go out and they they do different things, whether they're, you know, special events um, and that require drivers for teens without vehicles, is we now require all individuals that supply rides to Members of our youth group that are minors, all teenagers, require not just the background check, but they also have got to register their uh, car insurance with our church office and uh, sign a form indicating that they have a clean clean, uh, driving record, no major accidents or tickets or anything like that in the past couple of years. It's important that we note that no one can serve without a valid criminal background check. And our policy is to let you know when yours is soon going to expire and that you are required to renew it. This is audited annually by our church board. Our, one of our major responsibilities for our church board is to provide governance, not just over finances, but over policies that keep people safe. So everything from plan to protect to working from heights, um, anytime people climb on ladders, things like that, that's all governed by our church board. They supervise these policies. This means that they get from our church administrator, which right now is Stephanie. Um, Our church board members get a list of everyone with a criminal background check, whose is expired and whose is about to expire every year as it is their responsibility to provide oversight. And if you're unable to get your check, criminal background check renewal in a timely manner, unfortunately, you will be asked to refrain from serving until it is submitted again to our server volunteer coordinator. Another aspect of our plan to protect policy to protect minors, vulnerable persons, as well as our church is we require all those in a leadership position and those that serve with vulnerable individuals from Sunday school teachers to youth workers to uh, community facilitators to sign a ministry covenant to agree to comply with all of our church policies, our guidelines, our theology, and our standards of holiness. And volunteers will be permitted to work with preschoolers, children, or youth only after they have completed discipleship classes and signed that ministry covenant. And this this fulfills two really important things for us. Number one, we want leaders at LifePoint Church to be spiritual people. We want leaders to be godly people that know how to live a life of holiness before God. You know that there is a good chance 
that your children will be very well protected if at the beginning stage of volunteer screening, we're ensuring that only those who are the most spiritually mature among us have the opportunity to serve, lead, and invest in those who are most vulnerable. And the second thing is that policy gives us, as a church, an additional opportunity to just see what people are like, to evaluate volunteers. And it stands as a barrier that to repel persons seeking immediate access to children. And sometimes in, in, in certain churches, it's wide open. You come, you say you love Jesus, then you can immediately become involved in any ministry that you desire, not with LifePoint Church. Even if you transfer from another United Pentecostal Church, we still require you to go through a um, a discipleship track, an accelerated discipleship track, and wait for a period of six months before you're able to serve in any ministry that involves a vulnerable person. This is because at our church, we take the screening and the development and the discipleship of any person that serves in leadership very seriously. Another aspect of our policy is that we have adopted a basic two-adult rule. And the rule says that two adults should be present during any child's activity. This reduces the risk of child molestation, and it also reduces the risk of false accusations of molestation by individuals seeking a quick legal settlement. No closed-door policy for children's ministry. A minimum of two unrelated ministry personnels are present for supervision, except in the event of an emergency, or one ministry personnel is present with windows having clear lines of visibility in place or the door open with designated hall monitors circulating periodically from room to room. So, for example, right now we do activities in our fellowship hall, and um, that is a wide open room, and so it is possible, and where people can flow freely and staff are flowing in and out, it is possible if there are a handful of small children that, a single adult can be working with them on a craft because it's this large, visible, open area. And so that meets the minimum requirement, but generally our policy is to exceed the minimum for the protection of our staff. And so we suggest that um, there are two unrelated ministry personnel present for supervision in just about every circumstance. So we also have a bathroom policy and it covers two different categories. Well, the first is for preschool children, and the second is for elementary children. So preschool children are not allowed to go to the washroom alone. One of the following will be adhered to when accompanying preschool children to the bathroom. Either two ministry personnel will escort a group of children to the washroom, or one ministry personnel will escort a group of children to the washroom with one hall monitor appointed to assist with washroom and security duties. No ministry personnel will ever be alone with a child in an unsupervised washroom and they are never to go into a cubicle with a child and shut the door. When a, a preschool child needs assistance in the washroom, ministry personnel may enter the washroom cubicle to assist utilizing the following guidelines. Female ministry personnel will assist both girls and boys in the washroom. The outside washroom door must be propped open and an adult must be standing in an open uh, cubicle doorway. 
Ministry personnel will take into consideration the privacy of the child. Now, for elementary children, um, elementary boys and girls should not be sent to the washroom alone, but should be accompanied by a buddy and ministry personnel. Ministry personnel will escort the children to the washroom and prop the door open to make sure that everything is in order. And what that means is that's to make sure that there's nobody, um, no other adults in the bathroom. Yeah, it's really important that anytime preschool or elementary children go into the washroom, that staff need to clear that washroom of all adults and not let any adults go into the washroom until their group of children is finished going. So ministry personnel should then remain outside the washroom door and wait for the children before escorting them back to the classroom. Ministry personnel are not to be alone with the children in an unsupervised washroom and are never to enter into the cubicle with a child and shut the door. Male ministry personnel are absolutely not um, not to accompany female children to the washroom. So you can see the common sense approach to both of these policies. There are there is a chance that preschool children may need more assistance um, in going to the washroom, and our policy understands that and makes allowances for that while maximally protecting children and staff. For elementary child, school children, obviously they're at an age where they do not need toileting assistance, and as a result, ministry personnel need to absolutely remain outside of the washroom once they have cleared it of all other adults. Now, let's move to some general housekeeping points related to abuse prevention in our church. We are blessed to be able to have a, at least at the time of the recording of this podcast, a relatively new camera system. It's been in place for just a uh, a few months, and it is it has eight cameras, and they make up the exterior and interior of the building, and these cameras are on 24-7, and they are constantly recording, and um, they are they are accessible. Um, the camera feed is accessible by our senior ministerial and other relevant security staff at all times. And here are the placement of the cameras for safety and security. Front entrance, that's the front doors of the church. There is a camera mounted. The alleyway, that is when you are walking um down the alleyway of the church from King Street. There is a camera at the entrance of the alleyway. There's also two in the rear parking lot, uh, one of which picks up the side door. There is um, an interior camera in the welcome center. There's an interior camera in the lower foyer. That's the landing right in front of the washrooms. And that means we can see anybody that goes in and out of of our restrooms and up and down the stairs and access the children's ministry area, which is a great security feature. So we've got a camera there. We've got a camera in our fellowship hall. Um, That's brand new. And we have a camera in the rear hallway that captures anyone entering through the side door. Now, one aspect of our plan to protect policy is how to how to regulate, manage, and govern affection and touch. Because we want to deliver ministry with love. And we want to deliver ministry um, that is meaningful. We out of out of fear, we do not wish to become cold robots, but we want to 
appropriately display the love of Jesus to children, youth, and vulnerable individuals. And I know that a lot of this has revolved around children's ministry, but I'm asking all of our community facilitators that run Community Sundays, our plan to protect policy extends to your events. And um, these bathroom policies, touch policies, two adult rule policies need to be followed in our community Sundays as well. So Stephanie, why don't you walk us through what appropriate touch and affection looks like in a ministry context? So recognizing that children need appropriate displays of affection that reflect pure, genuine, and positive displays of God's love Appropriate touch with children that um, will be aged and developmentally appropriate. So we encourage ministry leaders to um, hold a preschool child who is crying. Um, if, so if a child's crying, it's okay to hold them. You can speak to a child at eye level and listen with your eyes as well as your ears. You can hold a child's hands while speaking, listening, or walking him or her to an activity. You can gently hold the child's shoulders or hand to keep his or her attention while you redirect the child's behavior. You can put your arm around the shoulder of a child when comforting or quieting is needed. And you can also pat a child on the head, hand, shoulder, or back to affirm him or her. And all touch must be done in view of others. And this includes also while you um, are praying. These are good guidelines for when you're praying with children. Absolutely. We don't want to, we, we lay hands on people. That That's a biblical thing to do. The scripture commands us to do that, but we can do that appropriately. And let me just, you know, throw on a ministry leader hat here for a second and say that this policy for children should govern our interactions with adults and especially teenagers as well. This means when you pray for someone that um, holding their hand, putting your hand on their head or their shoulder or on their upper kind of back, their back of their shoulder is appropriate. Touching their stomach, their chest, anywhere on their torso is inappropriate and should not be done in altar working, whether the individual is six years old or 66 years old. It's just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for people. So you may be detracting from what the Holy Ghost is trying to do because they're distracted by the placement of your hand. Yeah, it's inappropriate. And, And speaking of inappropriate, Stephanie, why don't you spell out for us what inappropriate touch is? So we're gonna give out specifics so you can understand what we are talking about when we say inappropriate touch. So recognizing that the innocent of children must be protected, ministry leaders will be made aware that the following actions are deemed inappropriate and will not be permitted. Do not kiss a child or coax a child to kiss you. Do not engage in extended hugging or tickling. Do not hold a child's face when talking or disciplining a child. Do not touch a child in any area that would be covered by a bathing suit which is strictly prohibited except in the cases of diapering and assisting preschoolers as outlined in washing policies. And we actually do not diaper at LifePoint Church. No, that's one difference from plan to protect policy is all those that come into preschool have got to be potty trained. And anybody that requires a diaper change, that diaper change must be handled by the child's parent or guardian. That is not at all handled by our staff. 
So you should also not carry older children, children that are old enough to walk. Uh, you need to let them walk. Uh, do not be carrying them and do not allow them to sit on your lap. Prolonged activity, uh, avoid prolonged physical contact with any child or youth and ministry personnel are not to be left alone with a child or youth at any time. Now let's talk about reporting incidents and um, let's discuss our policy for that. For the protection of our children and youth, all allegations and or suspicions of abuse against children or youth will be taken very seriously. And I know I addressed this at the beginning, but I want to formally address it again, that upon hearing of potential abuse or allegations of abuse to a child or youth or to an elder, as we are mandatory reporters for elder abuse as well. As well as those with disability. Like it stretches, you know, it's a wide-reaching policy. The church has got to give voice to the voiceless. That's that's the idea of this, is that as followers of Jesus, we are not just legally obligated, but we are ethically and morally obligated th- from the scriptures to be advocates of justice for individuals. And that means speaking up for those that cannot speak for themselves when they are under our care. So upon hearing of abuse or allegations of abuse of a child, youth, or a vulnerable individual, um, all ministry personnel should complete an incident report form. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But our incident report form is a catch-all Google form that is accessible only by our ministry personnel once you fill that out that um, it allows you to document any incident that is alleged or incident that you see. If someone is disclosing information to you, you need to listen to what they have to say, albeit you should not be asked leading questions, nor uh, should you contact the accused at any point after completing the, um, the incident report form. All of these forms are kept permanently unless uh, we are otherwise directed by our legal counsel and all allegations of abuse to a child or a youth or another vulnerable individual also must be reported to the proper authorities. That means you fill out the incident report form and then you call the police. And this reporting should be done in conjunction with the senior pastor, children's pastor, or youth pastor. It's really important when it comes to dealing with very sensitive information like this that we understand how information flows. Information flows up, never sideways, never down. What that means is if you receive an allegation of abuse, you fill out the incident report form, You let the proper authorities know if this is um, physical or sexual abuse of a minor or a vulnerable individual. And you also loop in the, your direct report and the senior pastor. You do not post about it on Facebook. I know this goes without saying, but it's a, important for us uh, to to go through it anyway. You do not post this on social media, and you do not discuss these allegations uh, outside of those that have the legal responsibility to investigate or uh, deal with the church discipline aspects of these allegations. This means we don't spread rumors throughout the congregation. If a child discloses that they are being sexually abused, for an example, at home or by a relative, we do not share that allegation with other peers that are among us. We share that with the police 
We reported on our incident report form, uh, which uh, which is made available to you from your direct report, and you also report this to the senior pastor. Any person, including but not limited to ministry personnel, who has reasonable grounds to believe that a child is in need of protection is legally required to report that matter to the police. Understand that failing to report an incident is against the law. And once you file that incident report, you contact the proper authorities and you contact the senior pastor, our senior pastor or designate, like our board, will notify our church insurance provider and seek legal counsel upon hearing of a suspected case of child abuse. Adam covered this um, earlier, but we want to just make sure that it's reiterated, is that no person, including church leadership, are to assume the function of assessing, substantiating, or investigating the need for intervention or interpretation of suspected child abuse. So that that aspect of uh, the reporting has to be left, uh, and investigating has to be left to the proper authorities, which is the police. Now, I know the lion's share of this podcast has dealt primarily with uh, sexual abuse and allegations of sexual abuse, but let's talk about other incidents that may occur. Things like accidents and behavioral issues with, um, with minors, they're probably going to be the most common thing that you're going to face. For example, community facilitators, the, the most common thing you, you may face at a community event is somebody spilling hot food. Somebody slipping and falling on a wet kitchen floor. Uh, somebody tripping over a cable or a cord in the lower worship room. Or uh, teachers or youth staff dealing with behavioral issues on a youth outing or a Sunday school class or a worship service. When these incidents happen, we still want to exercise common sense principles and prudent leadership on what may be considered more commonplace or less severe issues than allegations of sexual abuse. However, despite the fact that these incidents may feel more common, if someone is injured while on our campus or during an event uh, at someone's house or at a park, uh, or if there is a major behavioral incident with a minor or with a member of the congregation, we must report these things. Now, unless a law has been broken for which we are mandated by law to call the police, this when I say report, I'm not necessarily speaking of calling the police. What I am saying is that we have got to fill out an incident report. So if there's a behavioral issue in a Sunday school class, uh, somebody slips and falls at an event, or uh, trips over a cord or bumps their head or burns their mouth on really hot food during a community barbecue. All of these things uh, must be reported to our church leadership. So everyone will have access to an incident report form that when you call your direct report and said, hey, you know, I want to let you know this happened, they will send you a link to a Google document that is a form for your particular ministry, and you just fill out the pertinent details of that form. In the event of a medical emergency, if it's happening on church campus during one of our services, 
we encourage you to remain calm. And we are blessed at LifePoint Church to have many medical professionals that are members of our uh, of our congregation. And so Kids Point volunteers, if there is an issue, uh, or even youth, if there is an issue in the lower worship room where somebody is having a medical emergency and you do not have a nursing staff uh, downstairs with you, go and see one of our ushers, and one of our ushers will immediately get one of our qualified medical professionals to come down and assist. Our church has um, an array of medical supplies from a first aid kit to an AED and even a Narcan kit or two. And so in the event of a medical emergency, we are prepared, remain calm, get a medical professional, and then call 911. One, here's the flow for reporting other incidents. So, with sexual abuse uh, or or mandatory reporting abuse type instances, we had the incident report form, the police and the senior pastor. For other instances like medical emergencies, accidents, behavioral issues, your reporting flow is this: you contact your direct report, you contact the executive pastor, and then you fill out your incident report form. Well, Stephanie, whew, we made it. <laughs> we made it all the way through. Thank you for taking this 41-minute journey with us through our plan to protect policy. I know we covered a lot of ground. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to Stephanie or I. We're here to help. If... Um, if you have any questions or concerns about any of the material that was discussed, please let us know. We're here to provide all of the clarity that we can. And if you have a question that we cannot answer uh, right away, we are able to get you the right resources through both Robertson Hall, our insurance company, and our plan to protect program so that you can feel like you are equipped to serve. All of these policies, they simply serve to protect the people that we are called to minister to and they protect us so that we can serve freely, led by the Spirit, passionately and with love, and we can see our efforts collectively change our community, change our city, and grow our church. You're going to hear more leadership podcasts like this from our various pastoral uh, teams. We, we did a discipleship one, so if you're interested in teaching a discipleship course, teaching starting point, I really would suggest that you listen to that podcast with Pastor Shaw and Pastor Robert Wasson. There's going to be more coming though from our various ministries. So stay tuned, hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you soon.